Well, we're in the second week of a series, and we're looking at the significant events of life where we sense that we need God uh, the most. I told you this last week, I want to remind you again, it's in the times of loneliness and despair when God sometimes seems silent. We talked about that last week. When we feel the call to step out of our comfort zone into a new situation, we feel like we need God the most at that particular moment. When our world falls apart, we're going to talk about that next week. And I would say to you that if for whatever reason you've got a scheduling conflict next week, I would try to work that out to be here next week. I believe that next week the things that we will share will be some of the most significant that we've shared here at Northwest in our short history. How about when your past catches up to you? Some of you have been there. Some of you, maybe you find yourself there right now where you know what you've done. There has been no repentance. And you're wondering at what point your past is going to catch up to you. We've all been there at one point or another. And that is oftentimes for many of us, when humanly speaking, we think we need God the most. Now, many of you, uh, maybe you grew up in a home, I, I did, where from time to time we were encouraged to read biographies of uh, missionaries. Now, one of my favorites was a man by the name of Adniram Judson. He was born in 1788, died in April of 1850. He was an American Baptist missionary who served in Burma for almost 40 years. I read this week about his decision to go to Burma as a missionary, and I was intrigued once again by what I read. He sensed a call of God to go to Burma to share the gospel with people that had, that had never heard of Jesus. And he met his wife, Anne, and they fell in love, and he felt like he needed to ask her father for his blessing to, to marry his daughter. And so he wrote a letter to her father, and this is the text of that letter. He wrote these words, I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world. Whether you can consent to her departure and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life, whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influences of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, to insult, to persecution, and perhaps even a violent death. Can you consent to all of this for the sake of Him who left His heavenly home and died for her and for you, for the sake of the perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God? Can you consent to all this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with the crown of righteousness brightened with the acclamation of praise which shall redound to her Savior from heathen souls through her means from eternal woe and despair? His father-in-law did give consent for Adoniram to marry his daughter Anne. He gave his blessing to the marriage and in the end it did cost his daughter her life. In fact, during the 38 years that Adoniram Judson spent in Burma, that he spent overseas, he lost two wives and seven children to premature deaths. Some of you may say this morning, well, that's tragic, you say. What a waste of a life. Not so fast. Do you know that today there are nearly, I read this this week, there are nearly 4,000 Baptist churches with over half a million followers of Jesus Christ right there in the middle of Buddhist Burma. 
They followed God's call, Adoniram and his wife, to step out of their comfort zone to a place and a call that demanded more than they could possibly give on their own without the empowerment of the God of the universe. They did, and I'm here to tell you this morning that their life mattered. You know, for most of us in the United States of America, we live a pretty fairly comfortable, good life, don't we? And I want to suggest to you this morning that the sense of contentment and comfortableness that we feel so often is many times not really a good thing. It's not usually the best things. Sometimes we are comfortable simply because because we're doing what we want to do. Simply because we're doing what we feel is best for us to do. Not what we should be doing, but what feels comfortable to us. And the truth is that God calls each and every one of us, not just particular individuals like Adoniram Judson, God calls every single one of us to step out of our comfort zones. Not just some of us, but every single one of us. I want you to listen to the story this morning of some of our missionaries, the Hutchersons, who are spending their lives in Beirut, Lebanon. Watch this. I graduated from uh, college with a degree in agribusiness. I was uh, really looking forward to trying to find a job in the commodities and interest rate hedging uh, industry. During that process of interviewing, 9-11 happened and it shut down hiring in the banking industry completely. And so uh, I started looking at different alternatives, different things I could do. One of those was uh, moving to Colombia to do micro-enterprise development, help develop small businesses within poverty communities. And I already had the language and so I thought it was a good fit. But in that process, I started to realize how important having a background in, in Bible study, having studied the Bible thoroughly was. And so I started looking at seminary and wound up going to seminary. A lot of my classes started pointing at Islam and, and the questions that Islam poses to us and then trying to answer those, I really discovered a passion of mine, uh, theological education, and trying to help the church answer those difficult questions. The summer before my last year at seminary, I did an internship in Romania. I was working in an orphanage with a ministry there, and it wasn't the first time I'd been there, but it was the first time that I'd seen the church really take responsibility and do an amazing job caring for the orphans in their country. So I kind of left that summer thinking, wait a minute, does God really need me in Romania? They didn't really have an alternative plan. Then that semester, uh, Brother Andrew, who was a missionary, kind of a childhood hero of mine, who was a missionary behind the Iron Curtain, um, came and spoke in chapel, and something he said just totally rocked my world. He said, if you want to be where God is really at work, you should be in the Muslim world. What? He spent his whole life, he dedicated his life working in Eastern Europe, and now he's telling me to go to the Middle East? As we graduated and got married, We were looking for opportunities in the Muslim world uh, to do theological education, to work in and with orphaned kids, kids at risk. Uh, So we're looking and exploring opportunities to do that in the Middle East. So we visited a lot of different countries and there were a few that I felt, oh, I could definitely live here, I loved it. But the ministry opportunities there just didn't really mesh with our passions, our gifts. And then there was Lebanon. We 
connected with a church that had an, an orphan ministry, a ministry to at-risk kids that had just started. Uh, there were ministries, uh, some really good opportunities for theological education, both in the church and in the academy and a seminary that was here just kind of up the hill from us. We really struggled, well, I really struggled with the question, can I actually live and thrive here in a place where we mark time from when the last car bomb went off, or where we have multiple evacuation plans that change depending on which person, which country, which group starts the next war. I just didn't know if I could do that. But ultimately, it became clear this is where God wanted us to be. We just had to work through and trust that He would provide everything we needed. And so here we are. We're in Beirut. We've been here for four years. And I've been developing writing curriculum uh, for the church, uh, the youth and young adults ministry of teaching courses at the seminary. Uh, I'm coaching a football team that has outreach and discipleship as some of the major goals that we're able to accomplish through the football team. Nicolette is working really closely with this uh, ministry for girls, safe haven home for abused and disadvantaged girls. Every afternoon she's there uh, tutoring and playing and loving on those girls who, if you knew the backgrounds that they came from, uh, they, it would make you shudder. There are some difficult situations, but uh, we're just amazed to be being able to do the things that we have dreamed of in different ways for so many years. A lot of things about life in Lebanon are hard, but I think anywhere we live, there'd be difficult things, there'd be struggles, there'd be fears. But I'd much rather go through all those things in a place where I knew God wanted me to be, where I knew He'd called me to serve. Well, I'll never forget the first Sunday that we introduced the Hutchersons uh, here at Northwest. There was a very well-meaning, middle-aged well-to-do businessman, and he came up to me and he said these words. That was a compelling story that young couple told this morning about their desire to go to Beirut, Lebanon. He said, I admire them, but do they or their families have any idea how dangerous that decision might be? <laughs> I thought to myself as he was talking, having known Nicolette for so long, I was her youth pastor, I thought to myself as I was talking to him, if you only knew. They, they know exactly what they're getting into. They know. You see, that's what makes living for Jesus such a rush, is the ability to be able to step out into something that you know you can't possibly do on your own, but to know that you step out with the empowerment of one who is capable of giving you the ability to be able to go there and for His glory make a difference for His cause. You see, when God asks us to step out of our comfort zones, out of our familiar surroundings, and to do something that we wouldn't necessarily do on our own, it is because we have an overwhelming passion for the gospel. And I will tell you this morning that I know that this young couple has just that. They have an overwhelming passion for the gospel. And so when you listen to the news at night and you hear about bombs falling in the Middle East, don't feel sorry for these two people and their children. They are in the center of God's will for their life. And that is the best place to be. You know, the Bible is full of examples of men and women who did just that. They responded to God's leading in their lives and they stepped out to do something that they couldn't possibly do on their own. To be involved in something that was so much bigger than they were. And almost without exception, those people that stepped out, they accomplished great things for God. In fact, we would call them in our culture, we would say that they were risk takers. 
They had faith that God would do what He said He would do, and so they followed Him. They were willing to lay it all on the line for the cause of Christ. God asked them to step out, and they were willing to step out. Now, if you have your Bibles, you could turn to the book of Hebrews chapter 11. I'm not going to spend a lot of time there this morning, but in Hebrews 11, we oftentimes refer to that as the hall of faith, right? Those people that were that just exhibited incredible amounts of faith in their lives. Let me give you a few of my favorites that are found there in Hebrews chapter 11 and in other places in Scripture that did just that. God called them and they stepped out. How about a man named Noah? Anybody familiar with a man named Noah? Now you think about how crazy this is. We understand what a flood is. We understand what big boats are. Some of us go sailing on them at particular times. But in Noah's day, nobody understood what a big boat was. They didn't understand what a flood was. You imagine God coming to a man and saying, hey, Noah, you got a big backyard. What I'd like for you to do is to build a big boat. Because I'm going to send water and there's going to be water over the entire earth and I'm going to flood it and I'm going to save a few animals and I'm going to save you and your family. And so I want you to get to work and I want you to build a boat. Now you look back now and you say, well, I'd have done that. If I'd have done that, man, my name would have been in the Bible for all of history. Uh, not so fast. If you'd never heard of a flood, if you'd never seen a big boat, would you have responded in faith? Noah did. You imagine building a big boat in your neighborhood? You imagine the ridicule and the scorn? Some of you get that when you try to build your kid's play set in the backyard. Imagine if you were building a huge boat, telling people that God spoke to you and that God was going to destroy the earth and you were preparing for that. How about Joshua? When Joshua and his friends went to destroy that town of Jericho and and God said, I just want you to march around. Just keep marching around. And then on the seventh day, you're going to blow trumpets and the walls are going to come tumbling down. How many would have bought into that story? I wouldn't have. I mean, I would have bought into let's charge them with the swords, but march around and then blow trumpets? How crazy can you be? Yet Joshua did it. How about Moses when he stood in front of a burning bush? God said, remove your shoes. You're, you're standing on holy ground. I, I want you to do this. And what did Moses say? You don't understand. I can't talk. I can't stand up in front of people. Yet Moses believed God and he led his people out of bondage. We're going to talk about a lady named Esther starting in February. We're going to do a series through the book of Esther. How about Esther? Who risked everything at a particular moment in history to save her people. How about Shadrach, Meshach, and Tebed, I mean Abednego? How about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? How about them? You remember them? They were told to bow down to a golden image. And if you don't bow down, we're going to put you in a furnace. And yet they said, we're not going to bow down. Our God can save us if He wants to save us. I'm not sure I would have done that. I think I'd have done the trick of letting something fall out of my pockets. But I would have given the impression of bowing down. And some of you would have done the same thing. Yet Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the Bible says, did not bow a knee. They were thrown into the furnace. The guys that threw them into the furnace actually were swallowed up in flames. And yet Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when they were finally taken out of the furnace, the Scripture records that they did not even smell like smoke. You see, they believed God. They were, they were risk-takers. They were, they were just dumb enough, or maybe just faithful enough, that they believed that what God said He would do. 
How about Daniel who was told not to pray to anybody, not to pray to any other God except the leader of the land, and yet Daniel said, I will pray. And he threw his windows wide open as he had done for so many years, and he prayed and he got thrown into a fiery furnace or into a lion's den. I want to throw him in there with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He got thrown into a lion's den. Is an 80-year-old man. Some of you find yourself in that age group today. Can't you imagine justifying to yourself, but I'm 80 years old. You're going to throw me into a lion's den? God, I don't want to risk it. If they throw me into the den, I won't even make it to the floor before I'll die. Yet Daniel said, no, I'm going to be faithful. I'm going to do what God's called me to do. All of these people took risk so that they could accomplish something great for God. I think the disciple that best exemplifies true faith, true risk-taking, was Simon Peter. I want to tell you a little bit about Simon Peter as I'm talking. Take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 14. We're going to spend just a moment in that text this morning. Simon's full name at birth was Simon, son of Jonah. Sometimes it was rendered uh, son of Jonas or John. You know from Scripture, and some of you know from Sunday school, that he was a fisherman. Jesus gave him the name Peter, in fact, and sometimes he was called Simon, and sometimes he was called Peter. Other times it was Simon Peter. Peter means rock. It seems that Jesus gave him this name to remind him of who he should be. Peter was one of those, uh, I, I love studying the life of Peter, and I've done so many times. Peter was one of those who always appeared to lunge wholeheartedly into something, but then he always bails out before finishing as well. He was usually the first one in, and then he was usually the first one out as well. So whenever Jesus called him simply Simon, it was usually because he wasn't acting appropriately, he wasn't behaving appropriately, he wasn't behaving like a rock. And so whenever you see in Scripture there where Jesus changes and doesn't call him Peter, but calls him Simon, you can imagine what Peter's attitude was at that particular moment. Don't call me Simon. Call me Peter. I want to be rock. Please call me rock. I want you to be proud of me. Let me set the scene for you in this particular text. Jesus has just fed 5,000 men with just five loaves and, and, and two fishes. That's a pretty incredible thing in and of itself. These people had come to listen to Jesus speak. Jesus evidently got a little long-winded. They were tired. They were hungry. And Jesus said, well, let's get them some food. There is no food. There's one little boy and he's just got this little lunch. And Jesus says, that's enough. Bring it to me. And he fed 5,000 men, more than that, with women and with children. And the people are amazed. In fact, John tells us that they want to make Jesus king. I don't want to make him King Jesus, like our Savior from our sin, but they're like, hey, if this guy can feed us like this, I mean, think of the grocery bills that will change. What an awesome thing. I mean, I want to sign up to be part of whatever movement it is that he's involved in. But Jesus doesn't like that idea. In fact, Jesus refuses that idea because he knows he has not come to be their king on the earth. He's come to be the Savior of the world, and so he goes away to pray. And after Jesus dismisses the people, he sends the disciples ahead to the other side of the lake and he tells them that he's going to meet them there later. 
And they take off, and some of you know the story well, they begin to, to sail across the lake when there's a terrible storm that comes up, and it, it continues for hours and hours, and they're in the middle of this lake, they're drenched, they're chilled. You can just see them hovering in this little fishing boat, most likely, and they're no doubt scared to death, and they're wondering if they'll ever make it to the shore alive. And that's where we'll pick it up here in verse 25. It's between, somewhere between 3 and 6 a.m. in the morning. All right? It's a scary time, it's dark outside. Look what the text says in verse 25. It says, And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. Now we can understand their fear, can't we? All night long, they've been dealing with these winds and with these waves and the water that's coming into the boat. And it's now just a few hours before dawn and they're tired and they're sore from a long night, undoubtedly trying to row the boat, trying just to to, to get to the other side of this huge lake. You can imagine they're probably grumpy, wouldn't you be, dads? I mean, you get grumpy in the minivan when something goes wrong on a six-day vacation. If you were going across this lake, you had all your kids in the boat and everybody, they're arguing, they're fighting. There's no doubt that the whole situation is just horrible. And all of a sudden, one of them looks out and they see this figure walking on the water. You'd be scared too. I think I'd be scared. I wouldn't think, it's probably just Jesus. Would you? He does stuff like this all the time. Now you would think they had just experienced him taking this little boy's lunch and feeding 5,000 plus people. You, you would think that maybe they would say, could it be? No! They said what? It's a ghost! Now it kind of makes you wonder. It's one of those times when you want to sit down with the disciples someday when you get to heaven and say, like, do you believe in ghosts? Right? I mean, that's just a question that comes to my mind. I remember as a little child, my mom reading me the story and saying, do the guys really believe in ghosts? Because I don't even believe in ghosts. Look at verse 27. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, Take courage. It's I. Don't be afraid. Look what Peter says. John MacArthur calls Peter the disciple with the foot-shaped mouth. These are probably reasons why. Peter said to him, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, Come. Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and he came toward Jesus. Now there are some commentaries... Some theologians who have commented on this passage, and they're pretty hard on on, on Peter. They suggest that he is incredibly arrogant for thinking that he could walk on the water. The great preacher, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, is one of those that is incredibly hard on Peter and thinks how arrogant of this man to think that he could actually walk on the water. There's the suggestion that he thought he was better than the others, that certainly God wouldn't allow the others to walk on the water, but maybe, because after all, he'd been given the name Rock, maybe he could walk on the water. Now think about that. I think it's this. I think that he wanted to be with Jesus so badly, and that he believed that this was indeed the Son of God, and that wherever the Son of God was, there was much more safety than being in the boat. I really believe that's true. Jesus is saying, I'm the Lord God of the universe. I created this wind and this water. Don't be afraid. Just simply step out of the boat and come to me. And I really believe that at that particular moment, Peter bought into the idea, looking at the other guys that he was with, having been with them for several hours now in this storm, i got to be better off with Jesus than I am with you. I'm getting out of the boat. And so, look at verse 30. But seeing the wind, he became frightened. 
and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. You see, just for a moment, he took his eyes off of Jesus and he began to sink. And I think he realized, <laughs> this is the moment where I think he realized, hey, wait a minute, I'm Peter. My nickname is Rock. That's not good. I'm trying to walk across the water. Jesus, the Son of God, has nicknamed me Rock. This isn't good. And he began to look down and realize his circumstances. I'm walking on water. I shouldn't be able to walk on water. What in the world am I doing out here? And when he lost his concentration on Jesus, the object of his faith, that's when he began to sink. And I would say to you this morning that that is when you and I begin to get in trouble in our lives as we are stepping out. As long as we are focused on the object of our faith, things are fine. Everything may be tumultuous around us. The waves may be kicking up. The rain might be beating against us. The wind might be blowing. But let me tell you, it is safer out of the boat with Jesus than it is in the safety of morons in a boat. Verse 31, Jesus, immediately Jesus stretched out His hand and He took hold of him and said to him, you of little faith. Why do you doubt? Now it's at that particular moment that I look at it and I think, well, that's being pretty hard on Peter, isn't it? I mean, Jesus is being pretty hard on him. He's the only one that had enough guts to get out of the boat. And Jesus says, you of little faith, why did you doubt? In our English translation, there are actually four words, you of little faith. But in the original language, it was simply this, little faith. In other words, he went from being called rock to being called little faith. Not you of little faith, but little faith. Just like we were saying, Joe, little faith. Why do you doubt? Jesus wasn't condemning him for getting out of the boat, but he's saying, if you would have kept your eyes on me, you could have walked all the way to the other side of this lake. Why are you afraid? Look at verse 32. When they got into the boat, the wind stopped. Now I like this first phrase in verse 33. I find it pretty intriguing. And those who were in the boat. Right? Isn't it amazing that you always have a group of people that are around you? And um, in in the sports analogy, we call them fair weather fans. We've got some this morning. Oh, you're not NC State fans. But I'll tell you what, when they win a game... How does that? Woo! Yeah, go pack, go pack. That's what we call fair weather fans. I'm convinced that for many of these disciples, that's exactly what they were. They were fair weather fans. Those who were in the boat worshiped him, saying, You are certainly God's son. Thought you were a ghost a few minutes ago, but you are certainly God's son. Let me tell you, for those of you that would be willing at some point to step out of your comfort zone, that would be willing to step out of the boat, there are always going to be those people back in the boat that will critique every single thing you do. There are always going to be wealthy businessmen who will say to people like Caleb and Nicolette Hutcherson, do they have any idea what they're doing? I'm sure that the other men in the boat gave Peter a hard time after he got back into the boat. He probably said things like, why are you so afraid, Peter? I mean, that's God. You see, remember what he did just a few hours ago? I mean, he fed five Certainly he can take care of you. Easy for you to say. As you stayed in the comfort of the boat, comfort of the boat, who were they to criticize Peter? I say he's the hero in the story. 
Peter had at least had the guts to actually express his faith and to actually take that first step and actually get out of the boat. Where were the others? They were cowering in the corner of the boat. You can imagine them all like a bunch of middle school, no offense, middle school girls. I mean, you guys just, you get scared easy. I've got a middle school girl. Ah! Yelling, you do that kind of stuff too, right? And they're all cowered in the boat. And Peter said, God, if it's you, tell me to come and I'll get out of the boat. I like that. You see, here's the deal. If you're unwilling to take a chance, you'll never discover what living by faith is all about. That's true. You can mark that down. If you're unwilling to ever take a chance, to ever take a risk, you will never, ever, ever discover what living by faith is all about. If you have to have all the answers before you make a decision... If you're afraid to take a step unless you know things will work out to your advantage, faith will always be a mystery to you. And I say that to us individually, and those of you that call Northwest Community Church your home, I say that to us as a church. If we've always got to have all the answers and all the I's dotted and all the T's crossed, faith will always be a mystery to us. We will never, ever, ever do anything significant for the cause of Jesus Christ on this planet if you always have to have all the answers. You see, that's what faith is all about, right? Faith is believing when you don't have all of the answers. Faith is making sure of the object of your faith. One of my favorite pastors, John Piper, said it this way, by removing eternal risk, Christ calls His people to continual temporal risk. When the threat of death becomes a door to paradise the final barrier to temporal risk is broken. He goes on to say, Christ calls us to take risk for kingdom purposes. Almost every message of American consumerism says the opposite. Maximize comfort and security. Now, not in heaven. Christ does not join that course, John Piper says. To every timid saint wavering on the edge of some dangerous gospel venture, he says, fear not, you can only be killed. I like that. Luke 12.4, I say to you, my friends, don't be afraid of those who kill the body and afterward they have nothing else that they can do. They can only kill you. He ends by saying, yes, by all means, maximize your joy. How? For the sake of love. Risk being reviled and persecuted and lied about for your reward is great in heaven. Now, there's some of you here this morning that go, all right, I'm just going to face it. I mean, I'd be willing to raise my hand. I'll be willing to stand up and testify right now. I'm one of the people that would have stayed in the boat. But there's some of you here today, in fact, really all of us that need to be challenged this way, but there are some of you here today, and you might just think about stepping out of the boat. Here's four things that you need to know if you're thinking about stepping out of the boat. If you're ready to step out of the boat before you jump out of the plane, so to speak, and we want to make sure your parachute's actually on, all right, and that somebody's checked it and they know that actually the parachute, here's some things that you need to be aware of before you step out. Number one, God will often lead us to do things we would prefer not to do or to go to places we would prefer not to go. (laughs) You say, yeah, that's what I don't like about the whole deal, right? I was reading this week in uh, David Platt's book, Radical, which I recommend if you haven't read the book, you ought to read the book. I know some of our life groups are going through it. It'll change your life. If you don't want your life to be changed, don't read it, all right? Get the Reader's Digest. They still have that? Maybe. If they do, get that. Don't read Radical. 
And he was talking about the first time that he went into the Sudan, and, and they were telling him about, uh, there's, it's really not just you know, extremists that we're worried about, there's really these snakes that are all over the place. And of course, you know my hatred for snakes. As I read that, I thought, man, there's no way. And they're talking about, uh, you know, I'm getting ready to go to Kenya here in a few weeks. They have the black mamba. Well, in Sudan, they got the black mamba and the green mamba, all right? They were talking about how he said the, the guy that was leading them into the Sudan was telling them just a few weeks ago, he'd heard a story about a green mamba actually falling out of a tree and killing two cows, biting two cows, and the cows were dead within minutes. <laughs> yeah, those are the kind of places that God calls us to go. Yeah, not a beach in Tahiti. That sounds a lot better, right? He's the God of the beach of Tahiti. Why can't he send me there? Now he sends me where the black and green mambas are. Here's what I've found to be true in my life. That the things I don't want to do oftentimes in the end produce the most satisfaction. You found that to be true? Sometimes the things that I don't want to do, sometimes the things I resist doing, those are the things that ultimately produce the most satisfaction. I think that God works that way in our lives. We never seem to like what is ultimately best until we get down the road and we realize that it actually was best. I remember my first time going uh, to Kenya. It was just a few months after 9-11. And I can honestly say, quite frankly, I was fearful and I did not want to travel into a third world country with, given all the uncertainty that was in the world at that particular moment. I knew God wanted me to go, but I didn't want to go. It was scary to me to go. To think about being out in the bush. I mean, I'm a little bit of a picky eater. Just a little bit. I mean, that was scary enough. But to think about these extremists that are in Kenya. To think about the black mamba and all of this stuff. I didn't want to go. And yet I will say to you that in just a couple weeks, two weeks from Tuesday in fact, I'll get on a plane and fly with five other men to Kenya. It'll be my eighth trip there. You see, while I was there, while it was not a place where I wanted to go, not a place where I wanted to be, that's where God really broke my heart for the people of Kenya. And as a result of that, today we have a pretty connected partnership in Kenya. You see, just because it's easy, it doesn't make it right. Remember that. Often the right thing is the hard thing. Have you found that to be true? Oftentimes, the right thing is the hard thing, but as Peter found out, there is safety where Jesus is. I really believe this to be true. I'd really rather be in the center of God's will than to be in the place that the culture tells me is the safest place, but Jesus is not there. Well, it might not seem that way, even being there with Jesus. It might be dangerous. You might be lonely sometimes, but I can tell you, it is the best place. When God calls you to go and to be in places you don't want to go or be. Number two, it's easy to mistake circumstances for confirmation of God's leading or His direction. Now, don't get me wrong, I believe that God can use circumstances, but so many times I think we do this. I think we justify what we want to do simply because of circumstances, don't we? And obviously, this must be right. Just look at the circumstances. And it makes it easy to make a particular decision, to move in a particular way. We say things like this, well, God must want us to have this car. He gave it to us. He gave it to you. God must want me to have this house. He gave it to me. Really? 
Like somebody just showed up and said, hey, we got a house down the street. Would you like to have it? And you go, I'd love to have it. And the next week you pull up with your U-Haul and you move everybody and God gave it to us. God gave it to you. I can afford it. I want to say to you this morning, maybe God allows certain circumstances in our life to see what and who we really love. Maybe He brings those circumstances into our life. Maybe He blesses us with those things to see if we love that stuff or if we love Him. I believe God gives us stuff to see how we manage it, to see what we do with it. In fact, He said that where your stuff is, that's where your heart is. That's my translation, okay, of Matthew 6.21. Where your stuff is, that's where your heart is. You can say, my heart's here, but if your stuff is over there, that's where your heart is. You saying your heart there doesn't make it so. Jesus said, where your stuff is, that's where your heart is. And so don't mistake circumstances. Don't mistake the comfortable life that you have now with your house, with your car, with your bank accounts, with your vacations, all of that, and say, well, God obviously must want me to have it. He gave it to me. (laughs) No, He didn't give it to you. He's loaned it to you. And I think He's doing it to see what we do with it. Number three. Fear and failure only come when we begin to believe that success depends on us. You see, that's the problem for many of us. In fact, that's the reason why many of us don't ever want to step out of the boat. Because we believe that success depends on us. I have really good news for you this morning if you have that attitude. It's not about you. And you know what? When it's not about you, then there's no reason to fear the possibility of failure. That's what's really awesome. I remember in 2006 when uh, I left the church that I had served in for 11 years and I really felt like God wanted us to plant a church. At least I felt like that's what He wanted me to do. And I remember saying, well, God, I don't want to be an old man sitting in a nursing home and wondering what would have happened if I would have tried to, to do that. And so I jumped out. But I remember one thing that was very comfortable to me in thinking this very thing, that it's God that builds His church. The success of planting a church is not dependent upon a man, a woman, a group of men and women. It's not dependent on that at all. God says, I'm going to build a church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. So if it's not successful, as long as I'm faithful, then that's up to God. You see, when we decide to give ourselves to something that's far greater than ourselves, and and we believe that God desires to use each one of us to advance His kingdom, then we find ourselves totally dependent on His power in our lives, and we are desperate for grace. We're desperate when we recognize that it's not about us, that it is about Him. The success is not about us. We don't get credit if it's successful, but nor do we take responsibility if in the world's eyes it fails. That's such a freeing thing for you to recognize. If you get out of the boat when Jesus says come, and you keep your eyes focused on Him, you're faithful, and you begin to sink or you die, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Fear and failure only come when we begin to believe that success depends on us. And number four, I know some of you are going to say you say that all the time, and I'm going to continue to say it all the time. Number four, God is most consumed with His glory, not our comfort. You see, the sooner we learn that, the sooner, I say we, notice I didn't say you, the sooner we learn that, the sooner I'll be able not to say it so often. You see, the reason why we have to continue to say it 
why I have to continue to say it to myself when I'm all by myself and I'm studying to, to, to come and bring you the Word of God is because I live in a society that tells me that God is consumed totally with me. And that it's about me. That it's about my satisfaction. It's about my comfort. That it's about my joy. And yet everything I read in the Scripture says that God is a jealous God and it's all about Him. God is consumed with His glory and not our comfort. You see, here's the truth. God doesn't need us. So that doesn't sell very well. I mean, aren't you supposed to tell us, come on, do this. No, I'm not going to tell you that at all. God doesn't need you and He doesn't need me either. Who would you rather listen to this morning, Jesus or me? That's an easy question, right? Jesus. I mean, He could decide that because He is the great teacher... He could decide, I don't need you, Eisner. Get out of the way. I'm going to teach these people. And I'd be, I'm getting off. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. He doesn't need our church. He doesn't need other churches. He doesn't need our money. Even though it's His. He doesn't need our stuff. You see, because He's the sovereign God of the universe, He could fulfill His plan on earth all by Himself with just a whisper. He could do that. He could do that all, and he could make a great name for himself. <laughs> but here's the cool thing. He involves us in his plan because he loves us. Isn't that awesome? It is awesome for me. As I'm sitting up here this morning, and I think God would, doesn't really need me to do this, but he lets me. He lets me give truth to a group of people to remind them that in the times when he calls us to step out, that he's there and that he's faithful. How humbling is that? He loves sinful, rebellious, stubborn, selfish people like you and me. And so let me ask you this question as we close. What has God called you to do that you're not doing? Just think about it for just a moment. It's always that awkward silence. You don't want to risk the loss. You might embarrass yourself. You don't want to be uncomfortable. What would you attempt for God if you really believed that success or failure did not depend upon you? Eighty of you men this morning met in a, in a leadership class. Some of you maybe will lead a life group. Some of you maybe have already felt maybe God wants you to, to lead a life group. If success or failure didn't depend on you, but you felt God doing that, what, what would you attempt some of you might attempt to teach a children's class. Some of you, it might be as simple as going to your next door neighbor and talking to them about Jesus. And some of you have felt, uh, you've seen a need in the community and you've thought, that, boy, the church ought to do something with that particular need. You'd like to organize a ministry outreach to that particular area of our community. Maybe God's talked to you about leaving the security of your own employment to pursue missions or some type of other ministry. And you've said, I couldn't possibly leave my job. I couldn't possibly leave this income. Maybe God's leading some of you to downsize your home, to simplify your life so that you can invest your time and your resources in the cause of the gospel. Maybe He wants you to make a substantial investment in ministry. Maybe He wants you to make a substantial investment in the life of Northwest Community Church. And you're looking and going, well, I might need that money in the future. And God's saying, no, no. I want you to give it. I want you to step out of the boat. I don't want you to live by sight. I want you to live by faith and trust me that I'm the God of the universe. And if I call you, I will equip you. 
You see, God's not going to ask you to do something that he's not going to equip you to do. 1 Thessalonians 5.24 makes it clear. The one who called you is completely dependable. If he says it, then he will do it. And so, what would you do? What would you attempt today if your behavior matched what you say you believe? What would you do if your behavior matched what you say you believe? Our behavior so many times doesn't match what we say we believe. Many of us say that we trust God for eternity, but we don't trust Him for our daily lives. And I would say to you this morning that when God calls us to step out of the boat, He's calling us to something that's so much bigger than we could ever do on our own. And you may feel like there's some safety, that there's some comfortability in the boat, but that's not where our faith is forged. Faith is forged when we're in the water with our eyes fixed on Jesus. And I don't know about you, but that's where I want to be. I don't want to be in a boat hovering around in the bow with a bunch of cackling, screaming lunatics. I want to be out of the boat and I want to have my eyes focused on Jesus because I believe that when He calls us to step out, that that is obviously when we need God the most and when we can trust Him to be there. If you're here this morning and you don't have a relationship with Jesus, I want to tell you your greatest need for God today is to trust His Son Jesus as your Savior. And maybe the reasons why you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, maybe it's because you're fearful of of how your life might change, or because of pride, or maybe because you think you're not good enough. Ta-da! There's the issue. You're not. That's what the gospel is all about because we're not good enough. We can't possibly have a relationship with God except through Jesus. And that's why God sent Jesus to die on a cross to shed His innocent blood for your sin and for my sin. That we might be reconciled to God. That we might enjoy the life that we were created to enjoy. That we might have the relationship that we were created to have. So that we can have what John 10.10 refers to as abundant life. I like one translation that says life to the max. Life with purpose. Let me close by saying, man, if God calls you to step out of the boat, I believe there's some of you this morning, and I believe that even as I speak, the Spirit of God's moving in your heart, and you're going, I haven't talked to Him about that. How does He know? I don't. But God does. And maybe the greatest thing that you can do today is just say, God, you've called me. I'm going to step out of the boat. I'm going to just start walking towards you. I want to tell you as we close the service this morning, uh, there's going to be uh, one of our elders and his wife that will be up front with you. We'd love to pray with you about those things. To me, there's nothing more exciting than being around people. (laughs) Than being around people who feel like God's calling them to step out of the boat. i got to tell you, I don't have a lot of patience for people that are cowering in the boat screaming like little whinies. I, I don't have much patience for that at all. But man, if you're one of those people that says, I'm ready to jump out of the boat, I don't have any idea what I'm doing, I am scared to death. But if you're telling me if I keep my eyes fixed on Jesus, failure or success is not dependent upon me, then I'm coming. Look out. We want to pray with you today. We want to encourage you. Whether that's something that you believe God's doing in your personal life, in the life of your family, in your relationship to Northwest, that's the time maybe that you need God the most, humanly speaking, today. is because He's called you to step out. Let's pray. Father, I confess to you that if I would have been in that boat that night, unfortunately, 
I have the value of seeing the end of the story, so I'd like to think that I would have gotten out of the boat, but I know I would have stayed. And God, I know that right now, for so many people, there is a lie that Satan tells them right now that tells them that there's safety, it's better in the boat, there's, there's safety for the future, there's security that's found in the boat. God, I pray that you'd cause them not to believe that lie. But I pray that I and our elders here will live, will lead dangerously. And I say dangerously, meaning dangerously in the world's eyes because our eyes are focused on Jesus. God, cause us to step out in faith in our personal lives, in the ministry of Northwest Community Church in this community. God, we don't want to be people that have to have all the I's dotted and all the T's crossed before we move. We recognize that time is short. And the task at hand is great. We're so humbled that you let us be a part of it. And so we don't want to cower in the boat. We want to step out. We recognize, God, that we are totally dependent upon you, that that is the time when we need you the most. And so we commit to keeping our eyes focused on you, the author and the finisher of our faith, in whose name we pray.